Good morning. We kick off a new sermon series this morning. Uh, we're going to go into the book of Hebrews and work our way through it. Uh, we'll go about halfway by the time we get into Advent, uh, early December. So today we're going to do an overview of the book. Now that is a challenging task. I'm sure you'll appreciate 13 chapters in 30 minutes. <laughs> Dealing with concepts like Melchizedek and high priesthood and sacrifices. and Well, uh, what we're going to do is take a sweeping look. Obviously, we're not getting into details. Eventually, we'll get into them as we work through uh, the book. But what we'll try to do is uh, get the overall thrust of the message, God-inspired word, the overall thrust of the message, and what is God calling us to do as he wants to align us, the people of God, to his will and then for his glory. So the thrust of the message, to align the people of God for the glory of God, align them to the will of God. So that, that's what we're going to try to do this morning. So as we need, as we go into this, obviously we, we need a lot of help. God needs to help us. So let's go to him in prayer one more time. Pray with me. The entrance of your word gives light. So that's what we're looking, Father God, uh, that you would give us light. Uh, illuminate uh, the truth of your word that we might be enlightened. We might be able to see more than we can see. That we might be able to experience you in a way that we've never experienced bef be before. Because your word works. Your word is active and it's living. And Lord, your word won't go void. Prepare our hearts that it might be fertile, that as the seed of your word is sown, that it may take root, it might flourish, it might bring forth much fruit. Lord, we confess to you that we cannot do it in and of ourselves, but with the enabling of the Holy Spirit, we sure can. So it's with anticipation, with confidence, we come to you and ask this in Jesus, our Lord's name. I have never trained for a race, uh, but I've watched people train uh, for a race. Those who are serious get a trainer. Sometimes they get a coach. Uh, now, the trainer, they watch uh, their every move. The trainer tells them what to eat, when to sleep, what kind of exercises to do, how much to exercise your muscles, and a whole host of other things. And at times, it can be very hard. It can even be very demanding and sometimes downright discouraging. So if the trainer is a good coach, uh, he or she will come alongside, put their arms, arms on you, uh, around you. And uh, sometimes it's a good hug, but sometimes it's a swift kick. Either way, you're coached and encouraged to see what the prize is at the end of the day, right? Keep your eye on the prize so that you can endure the difficulties uh, is the way that a good coach would coach you, and trainer will train you accordingly. So, uh, in many ways, the book of Hebrews is like a training and coaching exercise uh, to help us run the race we're in, uh, the race we move through in life. We believe in Jesus. We want to live by faith. Uh, we want to live an obedient life. Uh, we want to obey God uh, as an act of gratitude for what he has done for us and what Jesus continues to do for us. 
we want to do that. But let truth be told, there are a lot of distractions, all kinds of distractions, and it makes it difficult sometimes to stay the course. It was no different for the, the recipients of this letter, the Hebrews, as we read in the title. Uh, the conditions may have been different, but the distractions, the discouragement, the disorientation, they were pretty much the same. Before we look at the contents of this letter, let's get a few things out of the way. Who wrote the letter and when? Now, if you've been around church circles, uh, you might have your, your own little pet theory as to who is the author of Hebrews. Uh, there are all kinds of options. Some say it's Paul, others say it's Barnabas, some say it's Silas, some say it's Apollos, some say it's Priscilla and Aquila, others say it's the Clement of Rome, all kinds. And you might have some other ingenious options as well. Now, there was a theologian, his name was Origen, he lived in the third century. Now, he made a very profound observation. He said, only God knows who wrote Hebrews. I, I think we can live with that, couldn't we? I think we'll take that, settle there, and move on. It was written around A.D. 60, or a few years after that, so the scholars say. And the recipients were Hebrews, who got this letter, Hebrew people. And they were possibly living in Rome or some part of Italy, as uh, the scholars will tell you, based on uh, the texts and studies and so forth. Uh, if we were to move on from there, the real question for us then is, what does this letter say? So let's find out. As we look at it, if we look at chapter 13, verse 22, that's close to the end of the book. The writer makes a statement. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So it's a brief letter, 13 chapters. <laughs> Uh, it is a word of exhortation. It's encouragement. Uh, it is persuasion. It is an urging to press on, to keep on keeping on, to keep at it, to persevere and to endure with patience because Jesus is worth it. That's the encouragement. Notice also what the writer says. He says he asks his bearers, hearers to bear with this message. Uh, just endure this exhortation. So it gives us a clue. This is going to be encouragement. Uh, this is going to be exhortation. But some of it is going to be a little weighty. There, is going to be, there are going to be some warnings, some cautionary statements. Uh, and so-called encouragement may at times sound a little harsh or a little difficult. Please bear with me, says the writer. Please be patient with this exhortation. It just gives us a clue as to what we can expect as we go through the book of Hebrews. Now, what are some of the concerns that the writer had for his hearers? And we have clues in the book, so we'll go through some of them. Uh, first of all, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. These Hebrew believers had heard the good news of the gospel. They were drifting away from the good news because they were not paying closer attention to the message. That was a problem. They were excited and engaged uh, when they first believed, but slowly their enthusiasm began to wane. When they first believed, they were singing, my hope is built on nothing less, on Jesus' blood and righteousness. Now they've been around the church uh, for a few years, and the words have slowly changed. 
My hope is built on nothing less, on preacher's notes and lifeway press. <laughs> Drifting away, our struggles are no different from theirs. Another concern is listed in chapter 3, verse 12 to 13. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So they were having some trouble, you can conclude, uh, because they ignored God's point of view. Slowly, their hearts started getting hardened, which means their hearts were not responsive to truth anymore. You start going down the slippery slope before you know it, your heart does not respond to the truth. Say you have a friend who's married. She's a regular at the gym, and, and, and there is this guy who's paying attention to her. And you point out to your friend, look, you know, this is God's point of view, and the track you're on doesn't quite align with this. Uh, she then gives you five reasons why she feels she's on the right track. And then she asks you this question. How can it be so wrong if it feels so right? So... You let this thing go, the deceitfulness of sin leads to an unresponsive heart. So this was a condition that uh, these hearers were in. A third concern, and, and that obviously, that kind of condition, our struggles really are not different from theirs. A third condition is in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Concerning him, and those are on the screen, so if you need to, you can follow there. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant." But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses strained to discern good and evil. So in chapter 5, we're introduced to Melchizedek, and we'll learn about him in, in a later sermon. But they could not quite understand. I mean, the writer was not ex able to explain to them. Uh, they never graduated from kindergarten. Why? Because they had not practiced using the word to discern between good and evil. Maturity was a problem for them. You see here that maturity requires three things, right? In verse 12, it says it requires time. In this particular case, time had not done enough for them. They were still immature. Uh, the second thing it requires, in verse 13, you find it requires a knowledge of God's word. That's important you know, if you want to mature. But the third thing is extremely important, which is the experience in the use of the word to discern between good and evil. Because they had not used God's word to discern between good and evil, they had a maturity problem. So it was not just that they didn't know, they didn't have the experience of using God's word. They probably had access to the latest podcast. They probably went to the coolest conferences. Uh, practice of God's word daily in situations of life. Figuring out what is good and evil and following what is good, that was the hard part. Our struggles are really no different from theirs. We will find another concern in chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In fact, if you look at verses 32 through 35, you'll see that these are believers who had endured some suffering. Their property was seized, they say, but they joyfully let those things happen because of their faith. And now what has happened? Well, they were serious believers, but they had to be reminded that they could not live as Lone Ranger Christians. A churchless Christian shouldn't be in their vocabulary. They had to be reminded of that. They probably thought if they attended church for an hour and 15 minutes, uh, that would be well. But they did not see the need for community where they could provoke one another to love and good deeds, where they could encourage one another. Real community means real people, and real people means really messy lives, because we're messy people. Our struggles really are no different uh, than these who did not want community. And then the last concern I want for us to see is in chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. Therefore... Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Now these were people who were very discouraged because of the discipline that they were experiencing from God. They were not able to see that suffering was part of God's PhD program in holiness. So because they could not see that, they were ready to eject, get out of school after the first year. So giving up faith under discipline, under struggles, was a problem they had. And our struggle is really no different from theirs. So drifting away from truth, becoming unresponsive to truth, no growth and maturity, withdrawing from community, discouragement. I don't know whether it strikes a chord with you. It surely does for me. If that is the condition then, what encouragement does the writer have for his people? And then what encouragement does God, through this inspired word, have has for us? So the first point we see as we look at chapters 1 through 4, we find that Jesus is better than angels and prophets. It's a whole four chapters, but the summary would uh, basically be that Jesus is superior, is better than angels and prophets. The letter opens in chapter 1, verse 1, with this thundering truth that God speaks. God who spoke the world, the creation into existence, spoke to our fathers through the prophets, and now he speaks to us through his son. That's the point that he makes. Now, this son is not just any other person. Jesus is not just any other person. The verse there says that he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of God's nature. Which means then that if you really want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. Look at the four Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament. If you want to know how God would live if he was our neighbor, just look at, watch what Jesus did. Just look at what he did and said. 
Now, what about these angels? Well, in Galatians 3 and Acts 7, without turning there, we, we get an, an indication that angels were involved in the administration of the law. God gave the law to Moses, and angels were involved in that process, in administering or ordaining that, is what we learn. So, you have angels who are kind of working on behalf of God. In fact, in other places in Scripture, we find that angels help us who inherit salvation. But Jesus is the author of salvation. The angels might help God, but Jesus is very God himself. So Jesus is superior to angels. That's the point that's being made. So what else? Uh, Jesus is superior to prophets. For example, the prophets of old, they spoke for God to men. But Jesus, he's God himself. So Jesus is superior to the prophets. Jesus superior or better than angels and prophets. Well, if God's Jesus is God's communication to us, and he's far superior than angels and prophets, we really have only one choice. We have to hear him attentively. He goes on then to encourage us by showing us the consequences of not paying attention. Now that is a problem. First, we looked at this briefly, verse uh, chapter 2, 1 through 4. If we don't pay closer attention to his message, we can start drifting. So it might be very tempting to follow perhaps the latest spiritual experience or, or a heart prophetic voice somewhere. But paying much closer attention to Jesus will keep us closer to him and not let us drift away. Uh, the second thing we find in chapter 4 is, uh, if we don't pay closer attention, and if we don't therefore obey, we will miss out on God's blessings. The example there is, uh, is the children of Israel, who lost out on many of the blessings because they were not willing to believe God and move and obey. So they did not act on what they heard. So Jesus is God himself. We want to pay closer attention to what he says. And we want to do it with a posture of heart that basically says this. Lord, I trust you. When you call me to obey, I see that as an expression of your love. It is not to destroy my happiness. Help me obey even when it is hard. Help me obey even when it not, might not make sense to me. Hear attentively, because Jesus is better than angels and prophets. What else do we see? We see that in chapters 5 through 10, Jesus is better than any other priest. Now, we don't live uh, in a culture where we see a lot of priests, so, so it makes it difficult for us to imagine these things. But people all over the world, different religious systems, have priests. It is because, I think, that people inherently recognize that there is a big gulf between God and themselves. So they need somebody to kind of guide them to God. They need a go-between between man and God. So all kinds of religious systems have priests. So in, verse, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we read that the high priest offers gifts and sacrifices for sins and helps the ignorant and misguided. That's the function of the priest. So while a prophet speaks for God to man, 
a priest speaks for man to God. Okay? That's the difference. Now, what makes Jesus better than any other priest? What makes him the best high priest? A couple of things. One, he has no beginning and no end, so he is eternal. The old priestly line in, in Israel, uh, people died and then there were new priests who came in. But Jesus is eternal, lives forever. The other thing that makes Jesus a perfect priest is he was made like us. A priest who mediates between us and God has to be like us. But his sacrifice was absolutely perfect and acceptable to God because he was sinless. So an acceptable priest, a priest appointed just like us, and an eternal priest. Therefore, Jesus is far superior than any other priest. So you say, well, so what? Well, here it is. We can live confidently. Why? Because we can boldly, the Bible says, go to the throne of grace and ask for help in time of need. We can draw near with full assurance of faith because we have been cleansed from our sins because we have the best high priest advocating for us, interceding for us. We who are sinful can approach God who is holy. Let that sink in. We who are sinful can approach God who is holy because of what Jesus has done and continues to do for us. So we can live confidently. Just a couple of warnings again here. As we live confidently, let's make sure we grow in maturity. Uh, in, in chapter 5, verse 14, uh, he says... Uh, he talks about uh, growth and maturity, we kind of touched on. Uh, he says, if you really want to understand God and his ways, if you really want to experience God, if you want to grow in maturity, you've got to be able to practice God's word in discerning between good and evil, which is what we saw a little while ago. So you see, in God's scheme of things, maturity does not come purely through Bible information, that's important. But it does come through practice of God's word and transformation. It's not just the information of all that I know from the Bible that makes me mature, but it's the ability to practice it and be transformed that makes me mature. So he says, press on to maturity, don't back off there. So we experience, experience God not just through information, we know about him, but we experience God through obedience. Second, he says, live in community. In, in chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, we saw that again briefly. Uh, you can stimulate one another to love and good works, encourage one another to trust God and obey even when it is hard. Encouraging, provoking people to love and good works. This is what happens when we live in community. As Pastor Joel told us last week, we have community groups coming up. And the purpose of our community groups is simply this. To help one another follow Jesus by hearing and obeying his word and being transformed. Helping one another follow Jesus when it's difficult. Uh, by hearing and obeying his word when it might be difficult. So that we can be transformed. Now this doesn't happen in a huge church setting like this but it does happen in smaller settings as in community groups. 
And if you think about our community groups over the last six years, there, there are countless stories. If we had an open mic uh, and, and let people come and testify to the blessings of community groups, uh, we'd be here for a very long time. People have come together and prayed and seen and heard prayers answered. People have come alongside and provided tangible help of all different kinds, even meals when things have been difficult. People have come alongside and helped, for example, single mothers with toddlers when their worlds were rocked and shattered, when their husbands walked out. All kinds of ways in which people are encouraging one another to keep on, to persevere, and keep going forward in obedience, even when it is hard. This happens in small communities. So make sure we live in community. And then towards the end of chapter 10, Verses 35 through 38, we see that God rewards us for endurance. 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. So there is reward at the end of our enduring. So not only should we hear attentively, not only should we live confidently, but we should persevere patiently. Persevere patiently. And then he goes on to chapter 11, which is the hall of fame of faith, if you will. Uh, and uh, he talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and a whole bunch of people. But he starts by defining for us what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. If you can see it with your eyes, it is not faith. It is a conviction of things not seen. So when God asks us to walk in faith, he is calling us to trust what he says and move forward in obedience. That's what the walk of faith is all about, right? There is a walk of faith. There is action that follows our faith. And it is important for us to always remember that if there is something that he's calling us to do and it is difficult, it is really an expression of love. Think about it. When we were young, our parents perhaps told us to wear our helmets when we went on a bike ride. This was not to make sure that our bike ride was miserable. It was to help us and protect us should we get into some kind of an accident that our heads would be preserved and protected. It was an expression of love, and it all depends on how we see it. If we see it as something that is going to prevent our own personal pleasures, we say, well, that's crazy, I can't do this. But if we see it as an expression of love, our approach to that, our motivation for obedience, our fuel for obedience might be significantly different. Faith is acting like what God says is true even if it might not make sense. And then he goes on to talk about all these people. Let's take, for example, Noah. In, in Genesis 6, we read that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that he was a righteous man and blameless in his time. It says that Noah walked with God. Then God gives him instructions to build the ark. Now, we don't know exactly how long it took. He can speculate, perhaps. But think about it. Here's a man building this huge boat in his front yard. There are people walking by and said, Noah, what are you trying to do? 
well, there's a flood coming. I'm building a boat. They would have ridiculed him. The TV cameras would have been on there. He would have been insulted. In fact, they would have said, this is the most crazy person ever alive on the face of the earth. But here's what the Bible says. Verse 22 says that Noah did according to all that God had commanded. In fact, the structure is so emphatic. Here's exactly how it reads. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. The end of commandments is so he did, and this is what Noah did. And so we read in seven, chapter 7, verse 1 in Genesis. God asked him to enter the ark, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. While everyone around him perished in the flood, he and his family were saved. Noah took God seriously and followed him in obedience. That is faith in action. And then we read in the later part of the chapter that while many did miraculous things, many also suffered for their faith. So persevering patiently requires faith, but it also requires something else. If we go to chapter 12, um, let me just read a couple of verses. Verses 5 through 7, for example. Uh, You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are approved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And then verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We might feel like throwing in the towel, but we are encouraged to keep persevering patiently. We need to have the right perspectives on discipline and struggle. Now, one poet did it very well. The author is unknown, but here is what he or she said. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into shapes and forms of clay which only God can understand. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How God bends but never breaks when man's good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with mighty power infuses him with every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's all about. Persevere patiently. So what do we do with all this? Jesus is superior to angels and prophets. We hear him attentively. We live confidently because he's superior to all of the prophets. And we persevere patiently uh, because we need to have the right perspective of struggles and suffering. What difference does it make as I walk out of here? Well, we're not left uh, without any kind of information. Chapter 13 tells us 
what that translates to in real life. And there are a number of things mentioned there. One is love first, and then it talks about marriage. Then it talks about love of money, etc. We're not going into all of that, but let's just pick one thing that we can follow through in obedience. Uh, 13, 1 through 3. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. So we're called to love the brethren. Now, when we think about love, we think in terms of what something can give me. If I love something, I'm thinking in terms of what it gives me. But in the Bible scheme of love, when we say we love something, it's an expression of what I sacrifice or what I give rather than what I get. So think about all the Jesus followers in your orbit or sphere of life. Who might you find the most difficult to love? It may be because of something they said. Maybe because they hurt you in some way. Whose well-being you find most difficult to sacrifice for? And the question we have to ask is this. What are we willing to do to seek the well-being of someone who we don't particularly love or the one we least love? It doesn't mean that I might go hang out with this person, but what does expression of love look like? We can't leave without answering that question for ourselves because that's what God is calling us to do. So as we hear his word attentively, let's live confidently going to God for help in time of need, even such as this, when it's hard to obey. And then persevere patiently, trusting and obeying. Keep at it, because Jesus is really worth it. As we end all of our services here by City Fellowship, we do have a time of prayer, and uh, we invite you to come forward as the prayer ministry volunteers come forward. Uh, please feel free to come. It might be praying for a specific need. It might be sharing an item of praise that you would like to just pray with someone. It might be uh, an aspect of health, of illness, of struggles, some particular burden. It might be the Word of God speaking to you and moving you to uh, act in obedience. It might be any number of things. But we've got a number of people here who would love to pray with you, so feel free to come forward as, as uh, the musicians play.